0: Next up, we have Dr. Carrie Gress. Um, Carrie has a doctorate in philosophy from the, from the Catholic University of America, is a faculty member at, Pontifix, at the Pontifex University. Dr. Gress is a regular blogger at the National Catholic Register and has written for Alexia, Catholic Vote, Catholic World Report, The Federalist, and The Stream. She's a regular guest on Catholic Answers and is frequently on Ave Maria Radio, EWTN Radio, and relevant radio, and has appeared on the BBC, CBC, and EWTN television. Dr. Gress has lived and worked professionally in Washington, D.C., in Rome, and Italy, rather, Rome, Italy, and her work has been translated into eight languages. She is the author of several books, including The Marian Option, God's Solution to a Civilization in Crisis, and A City of Saints, which I believe might be back there, A Pilgrim's Guide to John Paul II's Krakow, that she co-authored with a gentleman by the name of George Weigel. Heard of him before. Her latest book, Mary and Consecration for Children, will be released in March. On top of all this, a homeschooling mother of four, Dr. Grass and her family live in Northern Virginia. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Carrie Grass.
1: Well, thank you. It is really a pleasure to be with you all today. Um, I feel like Father Hathaway covered everything already, so we can Coffee now, but um, in any event, I have um, been writing about women, and um, hopefully, a lot of this will also ring true or at least be insightful for men. Um, one of the I want to issue one caveat, however, I think uh, one of the things I've noticed was when you talk about women, it's very difficult to find voices that are different than what we hear in the media. Um, I've started looking at. Where our our information about women comes from, and it's pretty much a, a chokehold that the the media has on how we think about women's issues. And so I think a lot of times you have sort of this pendulum reaction where people think, oh, she doesn't mean you know, contraception and abortion. She must mean that women shouldn't be working and that she, they should be home with their children and whatnot. Um, so what I want to do today is really look at. Some some content-rich ideas about what it means to to be a woman, especially in this age, instead of just looking at um, you know things that are, are outside of our own era. I, I think this, the lives of the saints are fantastic, but sometimes they're they're very hard to relate to. Um, so I want to look at at what we can, how we can look at motherhood in our in our lives today. Now I have a PhD from Catholic University, and while I was doing my studies there. I said, you know, this, this work on feminism is it's kind of interesting, I, I like it, I'm glad I've read it, but I don't ever want to write a book about women. I don't want to write about women at all, I don't want to talk about women, I'd much rather do other, other issues, and I ended up writing on human rights, but um, something happened as I was writing my dissertation, and that was that I had my own children, and the first um, so this is what really motivated me to start writing about women. And it all came from the fact that I realized how hard motherhood is uh, You know, up to this point. I had gotten a, or almost finished my PhD. I had learned several languages. I had worked full time I, while, I um, while I was working on my doctorate. And none of these compared to the challenges that I, I faced in motherhood. And I, I kind of went through motherhood thinking, next week, next week's gonna be easier. Next week, she's gonna sleep better. Next week, she'll stop teething. It was always this sort of something's gonna give and it's gonna get easier. And then finally I had this light bulb moment. Motherhood is supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be easy. And as soon as I realized that, as soon as I recognized that the the motherhood is supposed to be challenging, all of a sudden it, it almost became easy because I saw it in a completely new light and I saw that there were things that I was getting from motherhood. you know, Father Hathaway talked about the service that we are, are supposed to give. But I think we get caught up in that notion of service too much, and we sort of reali- forget that there are going to be things that we can get from this um, that are, that are going to transform us as women. And so this is really where my book, Ultimate Makeover, came from, was looking at how um, motherhood transforms us from very self-absorbed academic scholarly women into something much more open. Um, It it makes us compassionate. It gives us all kinds of virtues that we would never pick up if we didn't have these challenges in our lives. And so that's where the book idea came from. But I also tapped into a lot of my own um, academic work looking at the virtues and vices, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But while I was also having this realization about why motherhood is hard, I was also experiencing a lot of struggles that I was seeing um, in my personal life, but also in um, the lives of other women that I saw, that there were all kinds of grandmothers who were not very grandmotherly. There were all these women that uh, I thought I could tap into and get wisdom from, and yet they weren't particularly wise. Um, They weren't particularly concerned with trying to help me or other women raise their children. one of my friends said that she, when she has to tell her mother-in-law that she's pregnant, that she feels like a, a 17-year-old um, who's you know, single, and, um, and, and instead she's in a very happy marriage and, and has four kids and, and has a beautiful life. And yet there's, there's not a lot of support. So I think on the one hand, yes, we have these incredible resources to raise our children, but societally there can be all kinds of challenges that we face, um, especially as your family gets larger. And so I started looking at this and seeing, you know, not only, you can also see this in the news. In fact, I think two weeks ago there was a story about a woman who was eight, She's 80 years old, and she was mad that the kids next door were making noise, so she took her shotgun out. (laughs) She ended up shooting, she didn't shoot anybody. But, you know, the fact that it escalated to that point where she's got a gun because she's mad the kids are noisy, um, you know, it's a little disturbing. And then you probably also heard about that story of the woman on Delta. There was a Delta flight, this woman. Flying from, I think, New York City to Syracuse. So, not a long flight. It's, it's not like she's going to Europe. And she threw a fit and said, I'm not sitting next to a baby. And it wasn't even like she was in the same set of seats, it was across an aisle. And she ended up being escorted off the flight because it, she escalated so much to the point where she, um, you know, she was threatening the stewardess that she was going to get her fired. And anyway, so I think this kind of behavior is something that. Is largely unprecedented. I don't. I don't think we can really point to other generations and um, see this kind of problem on such a wide scale. And so, I thought, you know, what, what is it that, th- what's the model of motherhood or grandmotherhood that we that we like that we're attracted to? And I thought of this woman. She's passed away now, but her name is Mary Smith, and some of you might know her, might have known her. Um, some of you might be related to her actually. Um, but she went by the name of Mamu, and Mamu was this incredible woman she had six kids and a ton of grandchildren and now great grandchildren and just this, had a beautiful um, home on the Chesapeake Bay that she was always welcoming people to and when um, I had a chance to go on a retreat there with her and I met her and I was living in Annapolis at the time so I would go over just for a couple of days just to kind of get my fill of Mamoud because she was just you know there was nothing physically You you wouldn't say she was a beautiful woman she was in her 80s she was Overweight, as you would think a name like Mamu would indicate, and um she uh but she was just radiant. I mean you just people just wanted to be around her. It wasn't just me, but she she had this steady stream of people visiting her and seeking her advice, and you know even the people that helped her out at her home. You could see that they were were getting a lot of wisdom from her, and she was guiding people, and she had this like I said this radiance about her, and so. What she embodies for me, and it, you know, it's sort of ironic that her name is Mary Smith because I could be any woman, is just this idea that um, we are called to be beautiful, but that beauty doesn't come in in the way it doesn't come from through cosmetics. It doesn't come from the way that the media and the world tells us that it comes from, but it comes from this hard work that we do as mothers. And so I, I began to see, you know, maybe this is one of the reasons why we don't have these grandmotherly mothers because. They weren't really mothers. They didn't go. A lot of them didn't go through the trenches, and they didn't spend this time that that's really vital, I think, for um, for womanhood. So I want to look at a, a couple of um, practical things that we can sort of look at that we can apply to our own lives in various ways, whatever God is calling us to. But the first thing that we can see that happens with motherhood, of course, is this idea that we are we're called to cherish, to guard, and preserve. And um, this came, comes from Edith Stein. She talks a lot about the distinctions between men and women and this notion of cherish and guarding and preserving. And Father touched on this already, just the, the theology of the body, but I, I love the example of women's arms, how when we stretch our arms out, they're bent so that we can hold a baby better. A man's arms are straight. And you know all of these subtle things that we have in our bodies that just help us um, cherish, guard, and, and preserve our lives. Now, on the face of it, this is, it doesn't seem like a tall order, but to do this every day, night after night, you know, day after day, through all the trials that come with, with parenthood, motherhood, with all the juggling, it just takes an incredible amount of character and, um, and really virtue. Um, so in, in my book, Ultimate Makeover, I end up looking at different virtues and vices. And of course, we know virtues are like moral muscles. I compare them to our, our physical muscles that y- they, we can't grow them, we can't become stronger in them if we're not challenged. So if we think we're going to become virtuous without being challenged, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, and we know that the ancient Greeks really understood virtue as the way to become happy. that they, they spoke of the virtuous life as the happy life. And our the Christian tradition really focused on this for about 1,500 years. And for reasons I won't go into, it was it was dropped as an important piece of the Christian life. But I think it's being resurrected now. But we know that the virtues also have an opposing vice, that whenever we have a, 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 a vice, that there's an opposing virtue, that they go hand in hand. So I want to look at just a few of the ones that are are... Definitely developed with motherhood. Um, one of them is, of course, impatience. The vice of impatience gets replaced with the, the, ver- the virtue of patience and perseverance. Another one, um, a vice that I've I've started calling emotional skunking, is um, you know when you you walk into a room and you're in a bad mood and suddenly everybody's in a bad mood. Um, that you know if Mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. Kind of um, reality. And so I think this is one of the things that I, I've had to work on significantly of, of trying to contain, contain my own emotions. And this is something that's really unpopular in our culture today. We're, we're very emotive, and, and you know, it's important to express your emotions and have them, everybody knows how you're feeling all the time. But this is the, the opposing virtue of this is, of course, meekness. Now, meekness is, people hear the word meekness, and they think, you know, wet Noodle. And um, so but this is not at all what meekness is. In fact, meekness is really, it requires a significant amount of self-control because you are the one that's the master of your emotions instead of your emotions mastering you. So you're in a bad mood. You've been rattled by something. Rather than going to the dinner table you know, bitter and angry and frustrated, it's that capacity to be able to maintain that and to, to put on the face that you want to put on instead of being enslaved to, to the emotions. Um, certainly, another one is just the, the the common sin I think of women, of um, jealousy and envy, and I think motherhood brings us to that place where we can start understanding humility and trusting God much more in our lives and our our daily existence, and instead of you know constantly comparing ourselves to other women um, because we have we kind of have that isolation, and you just have to dig deeper. I, I think um, when you when you become a mother that. Um, suddenly the things that other people are wearing or doing, uh, you know, there may be that tug, I want to be involved in this. But you, you also get pulled back to this idea of, you know, this is where God has me um, and this is what I um, am called to. So I actually, and I love to use a look at the example of Our Lady uh, as far as just the different virtues and vices. One of um, the example of her at Cana where she changes the water to wine. We don't hear in scripture that she was gossiping about the family, like, wow, they ran out of water or w- ran out of wine. This is really embarrassing. You know, she's not, she's not gossiping about them. But she also isn't bragging about her son when he changes the, the, wine into, or the water into wine, which is, I think, something that I would certainly be um, tempted to do, you know, point to that guy that made that amazing wine. Um, but she doesn't do that. She just silently goes and does what needs to be done. Without any fanfare, she just sees it and very quietly takes care of the situation and is serving in a very humble and, and quiet way. Now, the other vice that women have, and we have this in spades, is the capacity to worry. And um, there's a great book uh, a priest recommended it to me. He didn't say anything about it. He just said, "Read this book." And um, it's called Warriors and Warriors. And um, it's it's I recommend it to everybody. It's sort of the decoder ring of understanding men and women. And it was published by Oxford University Press. I'm not sure how it made it through their politically correct layers of editors because it's not politically correct at all. Um, but this woman goes around and looks at different cultures and talks a lot about just what's very what's common to men and what's common to women. And she makes some incredibly insightful, um, she has incredible insightful insights about how much women worry, why we worry, and, all, and just why it is such an important Uh, essential. Um, I wouldn't say it's essential, but it seems to be something that that we do so naturally. But again, I think we can look at Our Lady and look at how we don't read in Scripture, you know, Mary heard Simeon's prophecy about the sword being put through her heart and worried for about three years. Instead, we hear Mary over and over again, Mary contemplated these things in her heart. Mary contemplated these things in her heart so we can take that vice of worry and we can transform that into contemplation where we're really meditating upon different things thinking what's god doing in this moment how is what am i supposed to learn from this where is god in this moment instead of i have this tendency to just think of everything that could go wrong and and it's really defeating because i just end up not acting at all and instead when you're you're looking at you know where is god in this situation um, it, it really brings a totally different cast and experience to that, that day in and day out of um, worries and concerns that, that women have. So the, the the vices and the virtues all act, of course, as a tapestry. They, they work together and they strengthen us and they they um, end up really transforming us. And, and we can see that if there's a way in which one of the vices is stronger, that we're going to really be weak in that area and we have to pay attention to that and and the Holy Spirit knows that. And I think you even have to be mindful of why am I having these same experiences over and over again? You know, Maybe I'm struggling with a different a, a colleague or a friend or in the same way over and over again. And, and that's the Holy Spirit sort of prompting us. This is something that you need to work on. And, and so as a result then, what happens is we, we can slowly but surely through all of these struggles become much more like Mamu, become much more uh, like Our Lady in terms of just being radiant and having our beauty being something that's interior that comes out of us instead of something that we're constantly covering up um, the, the signs of age and, and whatnot. But I think the, the bigger thing that happens with motherhood is really this um, deepening of a relationship with God. And a, a lot of times we describe motherhood, or think of motherhood, as especially those early years, it feels very much like a desert. Now, if you look at the saint, someone like St. Benedict of Norcia, he spent three years in a cave. And it was after that point that he came out and then he founded the monastic system. And so we know that there's something really fruitful about leaving the world and allowing God to, start to, see, to work on us and to see what our weaknesses are. And there's nothing like motherhood to show your, your weaknesses. I mean, dealing with children, of course, is so challenging. And a- any advice that you have is going to pop up, you know, immediately. It's going to be incredibly hard to, to hide that. And that's what, what it is that he is doing with us. But once we're humbled, one of the unique things about motherhood is that God really wants to initiate this intimate relationship with us. He wants to start sharing more insights with us. If we look at women throughout the Old Testament, if we look at, at um, contemplative Nuns, God shares things with them. I mean, a lot of our devotions come from the likes of St. Faustina, Um, St. Mary Alacoque, uh, different women who God has shared insights with. Even, um, you know, Mary knew about the incarnation first, and St. Mary Magdalene was the first to see Christ, not the apostles. So we can see that there's a very special way in which God wants to connect with us, and of course he wants to share the word with us. He wants to give Christ, his son, to us um, in that experience of getting deeply into our souls. Uh, One of the insights that I had when I was working on this book was just to see, you know, listening to people like, say, Mary Ella Koch describe their experiences. What they say is, you know, God, I had this seed. It was this idea that came to mind. And then, and it was so fleeting, I just didn't pay any attention to it. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And it got bigger. And then it became something bigger than me. We can see this with um, Saint Ch- um, with Mother Teresa, she had this small idea, and it ended up becoming some m- much larger than she could ever have imagined. And yet I s- I can s- we can see this is the exact same pattern of pregnancy. A woman knows there's this seed's been planted, and it grows, and then these these children, or child, ends up growing into something far beyond our own expectations. So even again, that theology of the body imprinted into our body is this way. In which God wants to speak to us, to reach to us, and to tell us very unique things, and not just, you know, tell us I love. He wants to tell us he loves us, but he wants to give specific insights and ideas to us that relate to our family or relate to the world, that are 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 unique to us in our own vocation. Um, And so, as a result of this, I think one of the things that the women. Desperately need, and I think you know, husbands can help their wives with this tremendously, is to really provide silence, to find silence. And I know that that sounds hard to do, um, but especially when you've got a busy household. But even just you know f- going away for 15 minutes, or <laughs> friends that pray in their closets actually um, and spend time there, find you know a little cell just for either journaling or different insights, because they will build on each other. Those ideas will build on each other. Um, and it's 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 a, a vital vital piece in terms of growing in the spiritual life and growing in these virtues. So after I, I finished this book on ultimate makeover, I ended up writing my book uh, called an Option. And while I was researching that book, I had I encountered this story about a priest. And this priest was had been a farmer before he became a priest, and he understood how to how to work with nature and how to grow a good crop and the importance of dirt and. Um, wind and rain and all of these kinds of things, and but he also understood that this nature that grace built on nature. That you, can, in order to get the supernatural, you have to work with the natural. So his concern was, how are we going to grow vocations? He didn't just look at it as, you know, just how do we convince men to be priests? But he thought, how can we grow vocations? And so what he did was he started a, a mothers' group. A, a scripture study for for women, and then he started a couples group Bible study. Then he started a group for men, and then finally he did um, groups with the parents and then with the children by themselves. And from there, he really started to get vocations. That there was this fruit that was happening because he started with the soil. He started with the women, and um, ended up growing it. You know, the, the vocations followed from that. Well, I, what I think this story illustrates is really just the idea that seeds are planted in us, both spiritually but also physically, and that as a result, we are, are called to nurture and to cultivate our families and uh, those people that are in our our sphere of life. and And I think we can see just how vital mothers are, especially when you see, you know you hear the tragedy of a young a young mother dying. We know that there's, there are few things that can rattle a person more than losing a mother, especially when they're young. And that's because the roots of the person haven't grown deeply enough. They still need nurturing from that mother. And that's, that's obviously something incredibly vital and important. And I don't think we really think of mothers in those terms. Um, but I, I think it will make sense n- more explained here. Um, but one of the th- other things that I s- discovered when I was researching the Marian option was that there was always talk about Adam and Eve and then there was Christ and Mary as the new Adam and Eve. There was always this binary reality going on and um, it struck me at one point and um, that there was no female complement to the Antichrist. And I'm not talking here about an antichrist as a person. I'm talking about it more of as a spirit, the way St. John talks about the antichrist being in the church from the very beginning. But I had never thought of it um, as, as an anti-Mary, as there's being some kind of a spirit of the anti-Mary. But I think if we look at, at this model of women as soil, and if you're Satan and you want to disrupt the whole world and get, steal souls away from God, what do you do? Well, you you have the women sterilize themselves. You have them kill the fruit of their womb. You tell them, you don't need to nurture your children. It's not important. You prevent them from cultivating relationships and from growing into nurturing, wonderful, Mammu kind of women. So, And and this, actually, this idea has, has... kind of taken a life on its own. I'm, I'm working on another book called On the Anti-Mary. But what we can see is, that what it is, is it's this erasing of Mary in our culture. And uh, you know, I, I've seen this so dramatically. Like if you went to a secular organization of women today and you suggested that women should be like Mary, you'd be laughed out of the building. You'd probably be escorted out of the building actually. But um, it's it's dramatic just how far we have come from Mary being this model for women. So now there's not even connecting the dots. There's no fabric there to, to really help women grasp that and to understand how important that is. And, of course, the other problem is that a lot of the feminist, um, a lot of the ideas behind feminism come back to this idea of emotions. It's very emotional. I've spent a lot of time looking at the philosophical underpinnings of um, a lot of the radical feminism um, arguments, and there, there's just no argument there. It's all emotional bullying, and um, a lot of it is also related to this notion of envy, which as I look deeper and deeper into women, I think men have a a fundamental sin related to lust, and I think women have a fundamental sin related to envy, and I I haven't, I'd love to be challenged on this, um, but it seems like the deeper I look, the, the more it's there. So even if you look at fairy tales, what, is it, who, what are these stories about over and over again? Everything from Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty to um, Snow White. There's a There's an older woman who's really bitter, and she wants to wipe out the younger woman because the younger woman's going to supersede her. She's going to take her place, and she doesn't want that to happen. She wants to hold her position and her power and be the fairest of them all, the most beautiful. So... We can see that there's a sense, even abortion is, and, and contraception are related to this. This child's going to take something away from my life. I can't have this child. It, having children takes something away from me. It doesn't add to me. It takes away from me. And the twist that we see, however, in our own day is that the, the, the fairy tale isn't focused on a young woman anymore. It's focused on men. These women are saying, I want to be like men. And they don't want to be like good men. They want to be like bad men. They want to do the things that bad men are doing. And so as a result, I think this is one of the reasons why men are so confused in this day and age, because they're trying to erase what good men do, and they're trying to become much more like men. I mean, even Gloria Steinem talked about this. She has a new book, or a book that came out, I guess, two years ago. And she spoke very directly about the real goal is a genderless society, and this is our effort, and we're, we just want to, men need, need to come become more like women, and I'm, I'm sure Ashley's going to talk more about that, but I think that there's a lot to this, this idea of envy animating our culture and animating what is driving women in our culture, and of course, we know you can't animate a culture with envy. You can't animate a culture with vice. There's, there's nothing there to, to build on, and so this is why we have so many unhappy women today. I think if you look at all the metrics of happiness in women, they will all indicate that women are incredibly unhappy from obesity rates, suicide rates, depression, substance abuse, um, they, there's just not a lot of evidence that, that fe- this kind of feminism is leading to the happiness that it keeps telling us it's supposed to lead to. So um, I, the last point I just wanna make is I have, um, I wanna leave some time for question and answers. But um, there's a new book that just came out. I just read it a few weeks ago called The Culture Code. And, you know, it's always nice when you have worked on an idea and then it's sort of confirmed in a secular book. Um, but this book it, is written by Daniel Coyle, who's written, I think, The Talent Code is what, is what it was called. It's a uh, New York Times bestseller. But in it, he looks at different cultures and what it is that makes them work. And he, um, he looks at Google. He looks at Pixar. He looks at the Navy SEALs. He looks at the um, San Antonio Spurs. Uh, just a whole array of different cultures. And he says that these cultures, he found many of them so infectious that he just didn't even want to leave. He just wanted to keep researching them because he was so um, motivated and and inspired by their work. But he said what what these things have in common is just really that there is a sense of belonging and connection between the employees. The, The people also, second, they realize that they're part of a bigger story and third, there's this safety in, in that people can express themselves and really be who they are. There's this very safe feeling that they, they are all have. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like a family. And it sounds like what the family is supposed to be doing. So it's it's actually kind of laughable if you think about it. Like, wow, he just discovered the family in a culture, you know? Um, you know, even right down to things like Google, Google, people that work at Google call themselves Googlers. And and people at Yahoo call themselves Yahoos well, what's the church been doing it's been calling itself the Benedictines and the Augustinians and the Dominicans for centuries We use the monikers father, mother brother sister um, in the church and so I think the, the one takeaway from me was a you know which co-worker would you rather work with Memu or you know one of these anti- or Gloria Steinem you know I mean hands down it's not hard to think about which woman you would much rather be around. And so I think it's, it's exciting to look at how the secular research is also showing these are fundamental things. A lot of these things are in our hearts and we just have to sort of uncover them and allow them to take hold and take root in our, in our society and, and that they're, they come naturally to us for a reason. And they're good, that, that we don't have to constantly feel like we have to live up to the, you know, be assertive, be fierce, be ambitious. Um, but in in fact that there are some incredible things that we can get, even um, looking at Galatians talking about um, the the fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I will close with the thought that the next time that you're wiping bottoms and wiping noses and up in the middle of the night with throwing up children, uh, you know, just keep in mind that this is all, it's going to, do amazing things for your children. It's going to do amazing things for you. And it's going to have incredible ripples throughout the culture. So it's all worth it. Thank you. Um, So I just wanted to ask, you mentioned that you looked around at women in in society and had a hard time finding um, support Mm -hmm. among other women. Mm -hmm. What can we as women do to be supportive to each other Mm as we're going through this, this stage in our lives. Thank you for asking that question. It's a fantastic question. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of research. Uh, there was a, a show in Australia done a couple weeks ago talking about how 80% of women don't want to work for another woman. I've seen other places. It's 40% more conservative number, and it's pretty striking. So what is it that women are doing that makes it so we don't want to work with each other? And, and I think it is because we haven't recognized, we haven't had it pointed out to us, this notion of envy. And that, and that's something that we need to be mindful of and recognize, you know, this person who's behind me coming up in the ranks isn't going to take my place. She's got a different set of gifts. How can I help her? How can I mentor her? And um, so I think that there is a real absence of women being mindful of mentoring each other. Um, one of the other interesting things is it, uh, this: one of the statistics in that book, Warrior vs. Warriors, was um, that women won't help other women unless there's a benefit to them. Um, and again, I think this is something that we're just not necessarily mindful of. But if there is a benefit, then we'll help. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, it, it comes down to that idea of... Re- and I, the other thing I think is women don't really think well, what can I offer that person? Like We almost think We don't have the experience or maybe we can't can't even be helpful, but we all know how amazing it is just to have somebody listen to us or ask us questions and start probing and trying to help us find the answers to something. And so I think even those simple, very simple things of listening to someone and trying to help them figure out their way, either based on your own experience or even directing them to people that you know might be able to help them better um, is is an important thing. And not to close ourselves off to that opportunity um, when women do cross our paths that are looking for help, and I, I think women have had throughout history this incredible capacity for charity. I mean, we know this through just history speaks of it all the time, and that's again that flip of that the vice of en- envy being turned into charity and that capacity to really uh, help others around us and whatever they need. Can you speak to the uh, problem of women
0: uh, or the challenge of women who are? employed full-time who are also raising young children.
1: Can I speak to the challenge of women? Yes, I can. It's very hard. Um, Yeah, I think this is one of the things that is incredibly difficult because the fact that if if you get anywhere on Facebook, you're going to have the mommy wars are just going to ignite quickly. And I I think it's a real tragedy because there's so many of us that are in, in situations that we feel called to. We feel like God has really called. We've discerned something. And you know, some situations, the woman is the the uh, better earns more, or what have you. I mean, I think these are, are difficult situations. But Edith Stein, I think, put it best. She said, the woman needs to make sure that she remains the heart of the home, um, and I, I think that's what it kind of comes down to. If it ends up being the case that I, I know of one woman that she um, worked long, 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 long hours, and her children just didn't want to be around her; they wanted their caregiver. Um, because she wasn't around them very much. And so in that kind of situation, that's where you have to step back and say, um, you know, we got to reanalyze this and, and, and question that. Am I the heart of the home? Um, but I, I think um, Brad Wilcox has some great research about how the women that are the most happiest right now are the women that are doing something outside the home but are also raising children. And I think that that rings true for so many of us because in my case, I didn't even think about being a mother I mean, it was something in the back of my mind, but I certainly wasn't training for it. I mean, I was tra- I was training. I had a career. I had an education. None of that involved cooking, laundry, childcare. You know, it was all so to go from 34 years of doing one thing and then all of a sudden changing tracks tra- dramatically. I-, I needed to find some kind of an outlet, and that's when I started writing. rap once I finished my PhD, um, that's when I started writing books because I just needed some mental activity. You know, after. Having this life of a mind um, than to go to you know Barney it, this was a hard transition, so anyway yeah, <laughs> yeah I, well, I would ask you, how did you do it? I mean I think that's a that's a great example. Was there something that you did that you realized how do I ask for help, or was it just yeah, I can imagine yeah i I think that's um a great question because one of the things that we're also told is you know make sure you look really put together and you've got it all put together but you know it's really hard when you probably haven't slept well you're tired you, you're hormone you know, all of these things are working against us in in many ways and this was one of the fun things about this book the culture code was that vulnerability actually is a, can be a very positive thing because it lets people know that we're not sort of bulletproof and that we can, they can help us and they can um reach us and they can uh, you know embrace us in in that way when we are struggling um, so I would say that that's something, you know, even if it just ends up being an awkward situation. I mean, I've had those experiences where people know you need help because you're in tears. Um, you know, that that's, those aren't bad, bad things. And it's important that we do get help because we need it sometimes. I'll be the only
0: guy right now to ask a question. This is dangerous. This is risky. Um,
1: you're in a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: um Well, um, the question is, you mentioned earlier about how you're drowned out. The woman's voice that is um, rooted in in God is really drowned out. I mean, uh, look at the Women's March. Um, In fact, in particular, um, women who believed in, um, uh, don't believe in abortion, were just completely excluded, uh, openly excluded. Mm -hmm. So just taking that simple example, not getting complicated, I mean, uh, do you see any kind of... um, mechanisms uh that can change the dynamic mm-hmm. because it does look like yeah. for women not um it just seems like a um a cause that's really very 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 difficult
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a good question and it is very difficult but part of the reason it's also so difficult is because of our celebrity culture because these women have celebrity status and because they have found a way of you know making it so that that conservative women and catholic women don't have a voice and are are drowned out. And um, so, yeah, I think that it's nice that we at least have some alternatives, whether it's social media, um, to kind of get these things out there. But it's a real challenge. I think this is gonna be one of those things that prayer and fasting is gonna be one of the only way, you know, almsgiving, um, to sort of root this one out because it's so ubiquitous. And the the more I look at it, I'm just astounded, um, you know, how much of a control they have. And, and you know what's actually fascinating is if, if we even look at um, the the Harvey Weinstein situation, it's just this perfect example of how, you know, we know men and women, their, their virtues work in, in harmony together. Well, our, our, our vices also work together because you have this man who's got the lust and you have all these women who are enabling him like, well, we won't tell her I had to go through this or I don't want to be blackballed or... Who knows? But instead, the vices actually destroy us together. So you can see how they work in tandem and Satan knows how um, to keep keep things silent or, or use these vices in a way that's actually efficacious. So anyway, I don't mean to sound like I, I, I don't have a hopeful answer, but I, I don't really have a hopeful answer for this one. I think it's just going to be uh, the case that we need to um, just keep saying what we're saying. And eventually, I think it, the biggest thing that seems to be compelling is if you can point out to women how unhappy they are, um, that that to me, I, or even and not saying <laughs> you look pretty miserable, but asking the question and, say, you know, get to that heart. Like, so how's it going? Are you happy? You know, getting to the nuts and bolts of their life and making them realize, like, you don't have to live this way, that there's a better way to live. And um, And I think that's the joy of. Uh, this book, *The Culture Code*, is recognizing that our faith should be infectious. People should want to be following our faith if we are living it right. People should should um, be flocking to it. And and I, so I think that that's another important piece that we can do on an everyday level. You know, basic things like look at the person that you're shaking hands with during the sign of peace. Very simple things where you're recognizing the humanity of the person. The other person can go a really long way. Um, And and just doing those tiny things goes a long way. Well, thank you all very much.